Welcome to our deep dive message on the book of Mark. Every week toward the end of the week, we'll be putting these up. You may have read all the daily readings. You may have read some, you may have read none, but the goal of this contact is to deal with the passages that we read, go a little deeper, hopefully bring something that enhances your study of the book of Mark. Now, the first thing to note is that all this stuff has been imparted to me. I don't claim to have done any of the research. My own thoughts may peek through now and then, but I really have to give honour to my Bible college professor, Dr. Rick Watts. Dr. Rick received his PhD from Cambridge and was a lecturer for many years at Regent Seminary in Vancouver. He speaks around the world and I can't believe I got to study under him. He is among the 15 to 20 experts on the earth at the moment around the scriptures. But if you were to meet him, he would simply say that he's a servant of Jesus. And he is one of the most humble men that I've ever had the privilege of speaking with. So the book of Mark, it possibly goes without saying, but just in case you're new to all this Bible stuff and welcome, I'm so glad that you're listening. The book's emphasis is on Jesus. Actually, it's around selected um, elements of Jesus. We have four eyewitnesses accounts of Jesus' life here on earth, and they all have different emphases, of course, because we're all different. I'm going to take home a different account of the party that you and I went to than you are, and that party went for three hours. These eyewitnesses were with Jesus for three years. They are like biographies, but not like our biographies. Ancient biographies would give a brief introduction, giving ancestry, family, city, if it was one of renown, and the occasional childhood story or fun fact. Their main focus was on their public life and there was nothing on their inner life or very little on their inner life, vastly different to ours. The whole point of reading someone's biography these days is so that we can see into their inner life, their life before they became famous, the way their psyche was shaped and formed, not so in the ancient world. Their death would be treated in great detail because that reveals your true character, how you hold up in the end to all that you've held to along the way. What was the purpose of Mark? to capture the experiences and the teachings. It was also apologetic. It was to win followers and to defend the teaching of the early church. And it was in answer to those who opposed them. Who wrote Mark? Well, as you might expect, Mark. The authorship of scripture has come under a degree of scrutiny. And this is a conservative rather than a progressive view, but I believe it. I don't mind, but I believe it. Uh, Papias, who was an early church pastor in the... Um, early second century, and I may have said his name completely wrongly, sorry, Papias or Papias or however you say your name, talks about Mark recording and interpreting Peter's eyewitness account. This is amazing. Mark dropped off the radar a little as a reference point to uh, early scholars because why would you bother with Mark when you have Matthew and Luke? They seem to flesh out everything enough. Take what Mark says and make it more detailed, more in depth. Mark's proximity to Peter means that this gospel is totally valid. It has what is a requirement of a book in the Bible, and that's this never used word in everyday life, apostolicity, which means connected to an apostle. Mark structures what he hears from Peter in an intentional way. He's recalling Peter's preaching and putting it less thematically, less chronologically than Matthew or Luke. But remember that Mark writes differently to those Jewish brothers, mainly because he isn't one. So just for those who want an answer for the historicity of the document and its authorship, here are some early peeps uh, that validated as from Mark, from Peter, at a time when eyewitnesses would be still alive and around to write a disputation if it was a load of hogwash. So Justin Martyr, 150 AD, the anti-Marcionite prologue, 166 to 180 AD, Arrhenius, 180 to 200 AD, Clement of Alexandria, 180 AD in origin 
or Oregon again not sure AD 200 now even I've heard of one of those dudes and and these are you know people that um, say that yep this was that like their quotes are that this is from Mark and and that that was from Peter um, so in terms of historicity it's good it's valid there are some uh, these are some of the objections cited about Mark's gospel it's too common a name but at this stage remember that the Christian community was small maybe 6,000 Christians Paul can just write Paul and everyone knows who he is of those 6,000 Christians not that many would be able to read or write there were only a few authority figures around so um, the name everyone would have known who Mark was it has been said that the gospel is too positive towards Gentiles but what's that if not the fruit of the gospel the whole gospel is the reorientation not around your birth ancestry but around Jesus he's writing after Paul has gone to the Gentiles and that all has been sorted among the early church leadership that actually Gentiles are okay so to be favorable towards the Gentiles to treat them well is actually um, a, a fruit of the gospel it's been said that he misunderstands Jewish customs, misunderstands time schemes, and their geographical errors. It could be that he's hyperbolizing the, old te- the over-the-top Jews, like our generalized stereotypes. It could be uh, that we misunderstand the two different cal- calendars in use, the Jewish calendar, the Roman calendar. So it might not be that Mark misunderstands the time schemes, but maybe we do. And let's remember he's writing before Google Maps, not claiming to be a cartographer. So if some of the geographical references are um, not entirely correct, I don't even know that they would have disputed it, that they would have had a clear idea. Uh, Some say that his portrayal of Peter is unrealistic, he's too harsh. But come on, this is a hallmark of the humility that Peter talks about in his first letter. The very fact that he would depreciate himself like that speaks to me of the validity of the account, not the other way around. There's a lot on John Mark's identity, but I'll just pick out a few cool facts. His cousin was Barnabas. He has a Greek name, Mark, and a Hebrew name, John, John Mark. So he would be a bilingual Hellenistic Jew. Uh, his mum was a weapon. It's her house the escaped from jail Peter went to when they forgot to let him in, as we read in Acts. And it may be that her women friends were actually at the tomb and would have talked to Mark himself. There's so much more that we can say about the provenance, the history of research into Mark and the goals of Mark, but let's just kick into the text right now. Here we go. Let's pray. Lord, enlighten your word to us. Lord, let this be spirit and life to us. Lord, let it not be information. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So let the end result be that we love better in Jesus' name. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, we have the prologue. The prologue is super important, particularly in the ancient world, because you can't just flick through a scroll. A scroll, that was. (laughs) Open it up and the first part sets it up and tells you about what's to come. So here we have verse 1 to 3, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now he does quote Isaiah, but the first part of the quote is actually Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Why does he say Isaiah then? Does Mark not know his scriptures? Is he more like me than those people who can recite chapter and verse during Connect Group? And you feel like, I wish I could know rather than saying, I'm sure it says somewhere in the Bible. (laughs) Well, it was contemporary practice to give the most significant author and Isaiah is central to Israel's hopes for Yahweh's return, which we'll um, look a little bit more at Isaiah's centrality later. Uh, So let me read this to you from Malachi C. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Here's Malachi. This is after the exile. 
And after the temple has been rebuilt, people have returned. The problem is nowhere in Israel's scriptures is any reference of the presence of the Lord returning to the temple. The presence came to Mount Sinai. It came to the tabernacle that he instructed them to build in the wilderness. And then it came to the temple once it was built, Solomon's temple. But once this temple was destroyed, when God said, no, I can't dwell with you guys anymore. You're just doing your own thing. You need to face the consequences of your actions. Then they were invaded, carried off, carried off. The temple was destroyed. They were brought back, the temple rebuilt, but the presence didn't come. There's no recording of that presence, the, the, the fire, the smoke, the everything that signified God's presence coming back. Well, this scripture in Malachi says there'll be one to prepare, then the Lord will come to his temple. It says that he will come in judgment. So effectively, hey, I'll send a messenger so that when the Lord comes in, comes in judgment, you'll be ready. Then the last verses of that book, the end of the scriptures, the Israel scriptures, in the end of Malachi before 400 years of silence, he says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So just tuck that one away. He's going to send Elijah. Just a note here. Malachi is not waiting for the Messiah. Isaiah is not concerned with the Messiah. They were concerned with Yahweh, the Lord God himself. That to say that the people of Israel expected a Messiah, but Messiah was always a conquering hero human. Jesus was the Messiah, but he was also Yahweh himself. So that's part of it. And then the Isaiah scripture, verse 4. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey, wild honey. Remind you of anyone? Here's a clue. Elijah. (laughs) And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I and the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So in the desert, going through the waters, it goes of the first exodus as we prepare for the second that Isaiah has prophesied about. Apart from that, there's not a great deal that we can glean about baptism. The Qumran, a monastic community based on multiple washings, was a thing, but there's no evidence of first century baptizing in Jewish culture. This could make us think, John, what the heck are you doing? Why do you want people to get in the water and come back out? And why are you just establishing this practice? But for me, that makes it even more profound. It's an inspired practice by this new Elijah wanting people to prepare for the Lord. Come and get clean. Get yourself ready. And like Isaiah 63 that talks and says, where is he that brought them through the sea? And this is a new exodus, leaving the ways of Egypt behind to become Yahweh's own. Saying, John saying, there's one who is stronger than I, the stronger one, we'll get to that, whose sandals I am unfit to untie, and sandals have the language of judgment about them. You threw your sandal at someone in judgment uh, in ancient times. John is saying, I can't judge, but this one, this one has the right credentials to judge. John continues with, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's something powerful here. People in the ancient world would make an image of their God in the form of an idol. They would then give that idol pride of place. And if you've been to Bali, you've seen this. They'll pray and offer that, offer things to that idol. Not the bit of wood or stone or whatever, but they believe that their God's spirit has come to inhabit that image. That's how the ancient world understood it. Well, previously, 
God wanted Israel to reflect him and his character. So he set up the ways they were to act and treat each other in counter-cultural, revolutionary, rights-giving ways that are foreign to us because the story has continued on its upward trajectory. But the giving of rights then was completely progressive. And so he came to dwell amongst that image. When they stopped bearing the image of God, well... Then he removed himself from them, saying, That is not an acceptable portrayal of who I am, and left them to their own preferences and desires and devices. But the story of creation says that we are all made in the image of God. So what John is ushering in is saying, Jesus will come and dwell and baptize us into our original image bearing design indwelling us with his spirit as we return to be the image bearers bearers that he desires us to be so we're like those little blocks of wood or stone that they believed that the the god would come and inhabit we are the image made in his image for his spirit to come and inhabit verse 9 at that time jesus came from nazareth in galilee and was baptized by john in the jordan as jesus was coming up out of the water he saw heaven being torn open. Just let me stop there for a second. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do great and awesome things among us. Oh, here the heavens have just been rent and Jesus is about to do great and awesome things. Isaiah 64 is talking about the Lord himself and that is who Jesus is. He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What a moment. Mark opens with the prophet speaking, then with John the prophet speaking, and then God himself speaks. And God is the first to make the declaration of who Jesus truly is. This is a display of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity is a term invented by the church a few centuries later, but here we have God in the way we know he is, Father, Son, Spirit. Now, the Connect Group study last week gave voice to what happened in the desert, so we won't focus on that. If you missed it, head to thechapelcollective.com.au, click on Home Bible Study, and there's a short video that you can watch about it. Suffice to say, the devil is convincingly defeated in this clash. That's the prologue, and we'll see Jesus explode out of it in the next section. In this next section, we see Jesus perform mighty deeds and mighty teachings, so that you would come, rend the heavens, Isaiah lamented and come among us and do mighty things. Well, the heavens have just been torn open. And here we go with some mighty things. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. So we see from Malachi that John was the new Elijah to prepare people for the Lord. We see that John has been rejected by the people. He's imprisoned. And that's a worry because if they reject the messenger, surely they will also reject the focus of the messenger. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time that God acts has come. It's time to repent and believe. Then you get the calling of the disciples and just a little bit here. Firstly, there's nothing impressive about these fishermen. Jesus calls people for whom God will get all the glory. It's always God who qualifies. And the second we feel like God made a good call, saving us, we're in all sorts. We need to keep it front of mind that it is only ever God who qualifies. And like the famous saying, he qualifies the called rather than calling the qualified. This should give us great peace and a great warning to never think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Peter, Andrew, James and John. Simon rather than Peter at the start. This is not a strictly Jewish name. Uh, So the potential is that Simon knows something of both cultures. 
Peter, Simon, is always mentioned first. And Peter, James and John form the inner circle. Now, the first mighty deed of Jesus. Again, we talk about it a little in the Connect Group study, so we won't spend much time here. But Jesus is teaching with authority. Mighty deeds are great, but they need to be in the context of great teaching. Miracles need context and substance. Otherwise, it becomes a show and not discipleship. Then he casts out the evil spirit, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. These constant healings show the heart of God. Our freedom that he brings doesn't just care about our soul and spirit, but also our body. Salvation is full and complete. How does that add up with our experience of people not being healed? To give reasons would be to use human understanding, but we can see that God cares about our bodily health as well. As the city flocks to the door, Jesus is answering the call for health because he cares. He's the instigator of health care. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Why? Wouldn't we see this as affirmation? Like if the demons will confirm who he was, who he is, let them speak up, right? Like like they're supernatural beings. If their testimony doesn't mean anything, whose does? Well, here's some thoughts. Why would Jesus allow the confession of who he is to be demonic? Also, the demons are identifying him as someone with power. And that's what the people wanted and expected, a powerful, conquering, heroic human messiah who would use power to deliver them and stand up to Rome. Jesus allows the human confession of who he is not to be associated with power, but with the cross. That is where the confession comes, the public confession. Let's keep reading. Very, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. We dealt with that in the Mark part one sermon, so we'll keep going. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. So the question the man asks, if you're willing, you're able. It sounds like a confession of faith, but there's kind of this backhanded nature to it of whether or not Jesus would be willing. After casting out demons, after healing various diseases, wherever he goes, this man questions the willingness of Jesus. This is a dangerous question that plagues us as we pray for healing. We say, well, maybe it's not God's will, as though God is not willing to heal. Now, we don't have an explanation often for why a person is not healed, but why would we immediately fall back on that God isn't willing? He is willing. So when we pray, we can pray knowing that God is willing. We should never call into question the merciful nature of God. Sometimes like this man, we fall on our knees begging, but we lack trust in God's character. What looks pious and humble can be a lack of faith in who our God is. It's worth examining our mindset. It's not our powerful faith that we trust in. It's his character. 
Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This shows us that Jesus does observe the Torah, uh, the law, and that this man is disobedient. This is setting the scene for the opposition that is coming. Okay, that's chapter one. Well done on getting through it. I hope that's been as interesting for you as it was for me. Chapter two is dropping shortly.